So hi everybody, welcome to the Self-Sabotage Show with me, Damien Colhane. I'm delighted to be interviewing um, someone who I've known for a couple of years now and uh, delighted to introduce you to Martin Sibley, who is someone who lives with a condition known as spinal muscular atrophy. And um, Martin is a disabled influencer and entrepreneur. So we're going to be talking about self-sabotage today and we're going to be talking a little bit about Martin and his background. And uh, so we'll we're enjoying the conversation around self-sabotage so welcome martin awesome thanks for having me on the show damien you're welcome so tell us a little bit about yourself first of all give us an intro to your background yeah sure so as we've touched upon in a couple of our conversations over the last couple of years that you know having sma um it's a neuromuscular disability um was born with it it's genetic so um not that i remember but i was about 18 months old when i was diagnosed um, obviously mum and dad have relayed what that was like for them to find out their first child me had a disability um, I got my first power wheelchair when I was about three years old um, so yeah all of my life's been very much I'm in a wheelchair all my waking hours I have care assistance for all the day-to-day -day sort of support with the physical side that on a physical level I'm quite weak um, but then I think you know as I say it doesn't define me in the way that I've got, I believe, and I'm told uh, a positive attitude and I've been able to go to uni, to a, I got a master's degree, uh, learned to drive a car with my hands, travelled the world and um, done various business pursuits that all fall under that realm of inclusion of disabled people. There's a definite thread that disability and inclusion is part of my career as much as it is part of my day-to-day -day living life as well um, and yeah so it's always been a life full of challenges and hurdles but a life full of adventure and making the most of every day as well. That's great and thank you for that intro it's it, this gives us an opportunity to talk about so many topics um, our focus for our podcast of course is the self-sabotage and uh, much as I'd love to find out more about other parts of your life and what it's like living with a disability and all the travel you've done etc let's focus a little bit on the, the sort of core topic so um, tell me a little bit about what your kind of vision is and what your mission is and and where you've experienced sabotage in in that and in your life yeah so I suppose maybe break it into two areas of personal and professional I think you know professionally when I left uni it was very much about the sort of get a get a steady job. Um, it, I worked for a very big charity uh, called Scope in the UK where, you know, it was a lot of opportunity to sort of rise up the ranks into levels of management and you know, potentially go down that sort of road of ending up at the top of Scope or the top of another, the, another charity. And that, that was partly a goal in those early mid-20s that I had. Um, but whereas now... You know, I think there's there's a general thing around that vision of inclusion, uh, the fact that I, someone experiences discrimination and prejudice every day. I also know there's 14 million other people in the UK, 1.3 billion globally. This is the number of people with a disability. So I think there's been a an awakening through my career that there is this community of people like me that face similar, but obviously different, but similar barriers. And so I think that I've moved through that wanting to, to have the personal success, inverted comma, 
to now and more in that realm of serving and wanting to help uplift the whole community. And in terms of self-sabotage, I think there were uh, elements of self-sabotage through, if we call that through that growth or through those two different chapters. Um, I think, you know, when I was trying to climb you know, corporate ladders, not quite the right word at a charity, but it was still, it, it's quite a good metaphor for that, that world when I was working at that charity. Um, and I think one of the self-sabotage was really just working so hard at this almost imaginary goal that I would wear myself out and I'd end up every winter quite unwell and having periods of time off work and as I said to you before we we spoke you know a couple of times general chats that we have Damon are very in, de you know, in depth and really interesting but you, know, you, you can obviously help um, me and the listener understand maybe some of the the core tenets of self-sabotage but I do believe that overworking to be one of those things that ultimately sabotage my progress because I just run myself into a complete state of exhaustion and, and ill health. So, I mean, that's a, a great description of how sabotage can impact you. How did that kind of cause you, what, what was the main impact of that? Did that sort of cause you any suffering? Has that affected other areas of your life? So how does that impact you? Yeah, I mean, it's a, still being slightly in that older chapter of when I was living and working in London at this charity, the, the impact was that, you know, so I would, in winter times, it's always been a risk with my disability that chest infections and pneumonia is the one big thing I have to watch out for. Otherwise, although I need a lot of support, it, I'm generally day to day, there's no pain, there's not any fatigue or ill health. So, but in the winter, this was the risk. And so to, to, I'd start off with a bit of a cold and I'd keep pushing and I'd then start to get that telltale signs on the chest that it was going the wrong way. And again, like I just kept going. And I think the, the, the impact as you asked me to define was that I'd end up getting more ill because I didn't allow myself to, to have that, that rest or to have that sort of recuperation. And also around that was like the doing the right things around health and immunity even to, to prevent this happening in the first place. But yeah, the ultimate thing was I'd be off work for two, three, four weeks. I'd then be even more stressed and anxious because I knew that my boss and my employer would start to get a bit agitated because I'm having all this time. And it just became a vicious circle and it, it all spiraled into quite a dark place, really. Yeah, and thanks for sharing that because that is something obviously which has, has impacted you throughout your life by the sound of it. And, yeah. you know, in terms of how you suffered from that and and what it's caused you you've clearly been able to manage that and and to kind of find ways of coping with that so tell us a little bit more about that what have, what sort of things have you done to help to overcome that yeah and i suppose that's actually a lovely way to to sort of segue from that chapter as i keep calling it into the the more recent chapter which was that i left scope in 2011 i wanted more flexibility to, to work from home and, and you know back pre-2011 it was a possibility but it felt culturally awkward 
even though it was a disability charity, it still had connotations of, you know, work colleagues were like, oh, you're working from home, are you? Are you going to have a lie in? And, you know, are you actually going to be doing any work today? So there was a lot of, you know, stress and awkwardness, even if I had a working from home day. So I think, yeah, it, ultimately I was able to leave employment to become my own boss and become self-employed. And that meant that if I needed a bit longer in bed of a winter's morning or a day off on a weekday, because I was just really low on energy, I could still pick that up of an evening or a weekend. But ultimately that work flexibility was one way I was able to, to yeah, to sort of get out of those more severe instances that happened previously. And then I think since 2011, it's been a massive personal development journey. I mean, you know, I've known each other a couple of years. We met through Mind Valley, and I, I give a lot of gratitude and thanks to Mind Valley and Vision for, you know, even lucky enough to actually meet Vision at some of the events, but more broadly, that, that sort of um, general self help programs that, that, you know, we've been able to benefit from have been huge. And so in the end, as I alluded to earlier on, it, it's better food, it's, you know, being able to meditate and be more mindfulness and not always switched on and on the go, go, go level, but to give yourself that downtime and that self-aware time. You know, it, it's more recently being able to speak up about when mental health and mental well-being has been a, a concern and proactively seek support in that area. So it's been a massive journey as it always is. And, you know, I know it's never a destination we massively arrive at. There's always more work to do, but I think working on me has helped me to not get in those sticky situations as much. Yeah. And that's a beautiful way to describe, you know, exactly how to overcome some of those sabotaging impacts and, and the suffering that is caused by sabotage where you can do those mindfulness training and mindful practices and meditation etc is a really good way to overcome them and I'm sure you know we'll explore that in more depth as well. Um, I'm curious to know a little bit about the the sort of impact on you personally because Obviously, you've talked a little bit about your career and, and the impact that's had and how you've transitioned from being in employment with a charity to now being self-employed and now running your own agency as well, which has mm -hmm. kind of taken it to a new level. So what I've noticed is that you've kind of really leveled up. And what I'm curious to know is, you know, when you were working for Scope, for example, and you were in that suffering and in that kind of cycle of, you know, the illness and, and not being able to work because you were getting ill, you were getting ill because you were working too hard. When you were ill, you were then stressed about being ill. So it's that, that kind of cycle, but you've risen above that and now you've taken on more and, and kind of raised the game. And it seems like whenever somebody is going for something bigger, more tension arises and it causes stuff to still come up mm. but you're better able to cope with it you know your yeah. your ability to deal with the tension your if you like your mental fitness goes up your resilience goes up so tell us a little bit about your personal life and how it affected you and how you've kind of become more resilient to take on that extra extra load as it were yeah I mean I guess one thing that's quite helpful to to explain is you know when I already mentioned it briefly at the beginning but with the disability that I have 
you know, having this dynamic with needing, being dependent on other people, literally to go to the toilet, to have a bath, to prepare food is something that, you know, I've had to always live with and to a degree accept and let go. But on the other side, you know, it, it's, it's always such a fundamental part of my life that if a personal care assistant leaves, which has happened a couple of weeks ago, coincidentally, but yeah, as a general point, there's quite a lot of stress around that side as well. And so I think, you know, I, I've always dealt with different types of stresses. I think disabled people are generally known as being sort of resilience is a quality many disabled people have because it's literally the basic human rights level of, you know, you have to be resilient to, to get funding for care, funding for wheelchairs, fighting through the bureaucracy. It's always a fight, really, when you're just trying to be an independent person through the realms of the care and the equipment and all that sort of stuff. So I guess over life, there's been a lot of lessons that that's sort of quite philosophical, spiritual level that every challenge we face is our teacher. And so I think there's a lot of those things have gone on subconsciously or unconsciously um, over certainly childhood and early adulthood. And then the last few years with the, the sort of up-leveling in personal development, which has enabled that up-leveling you just talked towards about the agency and the professional side. I think, yeah, that, that all just comes from, I guess, going a step at a time and, and taking the lessons we need to take, taking stock, finding new tools, new solutions. And so I think, yeah, it's, a, it's an ongoing cycle of try something bigger, probably fail a little bit. I think there's something about being comfortable with failure as well, but ultimately, yeah, not beating yourself up and going again and again. Mm-hmm. I can hear Sunny in the background yeah, cheering, he's, cheering he's you on. <laughs> <laughs> so that was great, and and what you were saying, you know, about every challenge is our teacher. Um, you know, that's a, a really, really powerful thing to learn and to understand because when you really come to terms with any type of disability or any type of change or when you have to have some sort of acceptance that things aren't as you originally thought or that you're finding it challenging. When you dig inside of that, although there's suffering and it impacts you, beyond the suffering and beyond the impact, there's also the journey of the learning, the growth, where it's going to take you and just kind of how you can then contribute back to the universe and take your unique place in the universe. You know, we're all unique. And uh, here, here we are, a perfect example, someone who's completely unique with your disability and with your ability of how you thought and how you've dealt with that and how you've transitioned in all these different chapters in your life. And tell us a little bit more about the uh, the agency in terms of the people you employ, because you, you, you've you got a, a bit of a balance, haven't you, of people that you actually recruit. So tell us about that. Yeah, so the, I think having, you know, because I was going to mention the Accommable chapter as well, which was the business I co-founded about four years ago. So sort of from 2011 to 2015-ish, it was very much me as a consultant. My priority was more about traveling the world and just bringing enough income doing the digital nomad thing but less of a um, as you sort of said we both said a couple of times uh, going up to a next level 
whereas a commable was where we had grants, we had angel investors, and it was a travel website for disabled people. And ultimately we sold it to Airbnb and we joked, it was like the Airbnb for disabled people. So the quite nice finish of the, the project or the business that Airbnb acquired it. But that, that chapter was definitely where I'd gone to that other level, but maybe didn't have some of the tools at my disposal to cope at that point. And there, there were all sorts of different variables and different factors, but it put a strain on me. I did feel I burned out during some of that, that period, that business. And it put a big strain on the friendship that had existed with the co-founder, as well as the working relationship with my other co-founder. So I think that's quite good just to mention that part as something that the business was a success, but it took a big personal toll on my health and on the relationship. Who, Fortunately, the guy I co-founded it with and I are still good friends now. And we sort of look back on that as a war story, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But bringing it then, so I was still after that, still looking at how marketing and social media is a powerful way to change a narrative of disability. But also I became more aware of the business case of inclusion. And so all of this led to starting this marketing agency back in April. And so we've, I've basically co-founded it with a marketing agency that has nothing to do with disability. So the first point to mention is that my co-founders, they don't have a disability, but they're a global force with a lot of experience and knowledge in the marketing world. And that's been invaluable because as much as I've got learned experience of marketing, it was all through the prism of disability only. And so that's been a really great kind of partnership. And then in our team, there's currently three of us, myself and another guy, Chris, we are disabled and Harriet doesn't have a disability. And so as we scale, we do want Purple Goat, which is the name of the agency, to be at least 50% of disabled employees. But we still want that balance of non-disabled people, partly because we don't want tokenism, we want right people for the right job. But we also need that both sides of the coin to make the agency better. But then all the media spend or the freelancer spend that goes on disabled people. So the influencers, the social media managers, the research experts, they're all disabled. So they might not be directly employed by Purple Goat, but since launching in April, considering we're in lockdowns and pandemic, we've sent thousands of pounds to talented disabled people. And that's been beautiful that we've been able to achieve that, particularly this year. Yeah, that's amazing. And that must give you a real sense of kind of satisfaction and fulfillment that you're contributing something to those people that do find it difficult to go out and find employment because of their disability from the reasons that you've already stated earlier. Yeah. So what about um, if we talk about that for a moment around the kind of marketing communication, because this is an area that I would like to, to just explore slightly around sabotage, because often people 
are not aware of how they can use social media or they do the opposite and they sabotage the fact that they can use it and then don't use it very effectively. Mm. So what sort of things do people do that where they make mistakes that kind of sabotages their use of social media? What are the kind of horror stories that you can share? I mean, I think the, you know, generally for me, the internet in broader terms have been amazing for disabled people to combat isolation, bring about connectivity, very much moving into social media. I think that's been a massive upside. I think when I talked about the cultural difficulties at scope of working from home, this pandemic has brought about, again, it's, we can study at home, work at home, have leisure at home, and that's been a massive benefit to disabled people. So there's various things that have just changed culturally in that area, which I think is quite good to mention. But I think for me that the downside, the dark side of the internet and social media is probably most obviously the trolling stuff. And so I've, you know, as an influencer, I've been trolled and actually ironically has been as much by disabled people as non-disabled people. You know, others that don't know much about disability would think, oh, everyone that's disabled must really love what Martin does because he's trying to make the world more inclusive. But of course, we all have our own values and ideas. And, you know, I think with my get, you know, get out there attitude, people that are struggling, maybe I kind of take away uh, an excuse in their mind that they had that, all oh, the world's against me, the world's inaccessible, and I'm showing what is possible. So I think all of this is to say that when people troll, it's normally because of an internal sort of fear or worry or problem that they're going through and they kind of take it out on the thing that pops up on their newsfeed. And to me, that is a form of self-sabotage because some of the people that have been quite rude to me, they may have had an underlying uh, point that's quite valid, but by being just vitriolic and nasty, I've lost respect for them. And later on, they've tried to apologize and make amends and explain, but it's to some degree, the damage has been done a little bit. That respect has been lost a little bit. So yeah, I think that, you know, it's back to that self-awareness is the answer, but definitely a self-sabotaging marketing is just writing blogs and commenting on people's content from a place of scarcity and fear and just generally conducting yourself in a not very likable, positive manner. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because I've also experienced the trolling and, uh, and you know, it's just, it feels so unnecessary and feels yeah. so kind of like, you know, why are people spending their time in this? But you're right, it's because they have a suffering and a pain that's, that's, that's manifesting inside yeah. and they bring that out onto the surface through their, their behaviour. And that brings up two or three saboteurs at least um, in terms of the behaviour. One is the judge. So our number one saboteur is the judge and mm -hmm. we're judging ourselves first 
and judging our others second and then judging our situation or situations. So all of this kind of division, um, not just around disability, but also around race or around what political party or what your beliefs are for the future of a country, mm. all of those things, you know, even health things are, are all very divisive now. So people come out and are very strong in, in one camp or another. Whereas you look at some of the, the kind of Eastern philosophy of that story of the the wise man who who has a beautiful stallion that uh, everyone comes to him and says, oh, you know, your stallion is so great. And he says, oh, yeah, good thing, bad thing, who knows? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Saw, we saw this with Sri Kumar, right? Yeah. Uh, when, when we were in Pula last year in uh, 2019. And, uh, you know, he talks about that story where the stallion runs away and the the other members of the village and the tribe come to him and say, oh, you know, you must be really upset because your stallions run away. Ah, oh, good thing, bad thing, who knows? And it's almost like you, you don't allow yourself to really become attached to um, situations that are going to trigger you. Yeah. Of course, we're passionate. You know, I can hear the passion that you have for disability and the passion you have for, you know, creation and, and disability inclusion and, and all of those things. So there's things that we're passionate about but when we emotionally attach ourselves to things that we, if you like, start to possess, then we start to judge ourselves based on that and judge others in comparison to whether they agree with us or not. Mm -hmm. So the judge saboteur can be incredibly damaging. The other one which gets triggered, which is something that you probably described there, and I, I, it's not just disabled people, you know, anyone can experience this, is the victim saboteur. Mm -hmm. And it's incredibly damaging because the person who is in that mindset of being a victim will really be blaming others for their situation. They'll be in denial of, of what they're capable of. And generally they tend to make excuses for why they have a situation the way it is. So they don't really have any personal responsibility. And so the victim kind of always looks outside and looks to blame others. The difficulty with that is that the impact that has is that the person that they're reflecting that on or the people around them mm. feel completely helpless because they're always being told that there's an excuse or they're in denial and they're blaming somebody. So the people that are there to try and help them feel helpless because they can't do anything to help this person. It's like an eternal you know, loop, as it were. So, uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. So how have you found it in terms of, you know, being an employer and employing uh, subcontractors and, and other people, how do you kind of overcome the fact that people might be sabotaging their own work or sabotaging their own effectiveness? How do you deal with that as a leader? Yeah, that's a really good question. Because I think I've, since we launched in April, I've, you know, gone through my own limit, limiting beliefs, certainly. And, you know, I, I think when, when we talk about self-sabotage, it's sort of, for me that when you are sabotaging anything, it's very sort of subconscious, right? You're very unaware often that you're doing it. Sometimes people proactively, you know, literally set fire metaphorically or actually mm -hmm. to a situation, but most of the time it's subconscious. And so it's um, a really interesting chatting with you in general and particularly on the podcast about that idea of sabotage and trying to pick out what types of sabotage we all generally do as people and so I think I've been trying to upskill you know not have an imposter syndrome when I'm talking to clients that are multinational we're talking about budgets that are eye-wateringly bigger than I was ever used to 
and I'm like feeling, am I good enough? Am I worthy enough? And as I say, that sort of imposter syndrome. But as you mentioned about managing people, I like to just be this very, you know, down to earth, happy go lucky, kind of friends with everyone kind of guy. And that, and that's still a good trait of a leader. I still believe that's important to have parts of those attributes. But as you say, you, you have to have your eye on the team, on the freelancers, that are they ultimately de delivering what we've promised the client in a timely manner, conducting themselves in a good way. You can never know all that's going on, but there are ways of, of you know, being able to maybe be copied in when it's someone you've not worked with for, for in the first place for the first couple of weeks, just to see how they are conducting themselves generally. But I think in the end, there's just a lot, <coughs> excuse me, a lot about trust. And I think it's about just really regularly checking in. And I feel like I'm being more open than ever about my flaws and how I cope with those and have strategies. And I hope that that, that sort of almost role model approach will help those around me see that it's a safe place if they are struggling to talk about it and if they need help to talk about it. So that's kind of broadly what my strategy has become, but we're like six, seven months into this new agency. So that'd be interesting in a year what I say to you as well. <laughs> yeah, it's ever evolving, right? Particularly in a kind of startup situation, you're you're going to be growing and experiencing all that yeah. kind of experience of growth and, and the pains that that can cause, but also the, the excitement and opportunity and growth Definitely. that comes from that as a person. Yeah. So I was interested in what you said about how you've addressed your own shortcomings and your own kind of, you know, sabotaging thoughts or sabotaging behavior and kind of mm. tried to deal with that and, and level up. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, so I think there's the tangible things we've touched upon, like, you know, how to, if you have a business, to generally not be overwhelmed by it. The sort of the physical well-being of basically what's good diet, good sleep, good exercise. So uh, I think we've touched upon bits of that already, but I think a general sort of cycle that I tend to go through when I look back and uh, just a general place I get to that I know is not, a good place to always be getting to is that of bit burned out general sort of overdone it but then my mind starts racing more and I start to just feel that there's more problems everything's harder so again it's a we keep talking about vicious cycles but I I know I, I partly know when I'm there but even then sometimes I don't completely catch myself and I still spiral and I think it's something that will always be there but it came to a bit more of a crunch point this summer where we've had COVID-19 and the pandemic and I was within the list of people that the government said shield you know stay home because you're more at risk of this virus so there was a level of existential worry then there was I have the care team coming in so actually how can they still come in for my most basic needs, but de-risk them bringing the virus in to the home? So sort of connected to the first point, but that layer around, I still have to have people coming in my home, even though I'm being told by the government 
not to go near anybody, right? So there's a kind mm. of contradiction there. Um, and so I ploughed into Purple Goat and my work and I couldn't travel, which is, you know, I love traveling. I'm normally every other month on a plane somewhere and that all stopped. And so I think there were very specific things to do with the pandemic, which came to a bit of a pinch point mental health wise. But I also then realized that it exacerbated older patterns and older worries generally around care assistance, the sort of dynamic and my relationship in my own mind about having care. It brought up stuff about my own identity of being disabled. It threw up things about my parents and when they got divorced when I was 10 years old. And it, it was like a real kind of moment, a milestone landmark moment where I don't know if it would have happened without the pandemic, but it was not only the pandemic, it was all sorts of things. I, I had a, a care assistant at uni that um, sort of out going into loads of it, but it he, he got a bit weird and it got a bit nasty and I had to get the police involved, all this kind of stuff. Um, so I just felt it was time to address all this stuff. And so having had quite a stigma around the idea of counseling or therapy, I decided it was time to go head on with this stuff. And so through navigating the not easy NHS route for free help, which ultimately still didn't turn out very positively, I ended up having private sessions in sort of September, October. And oh my God, it's been phenomenal. Just really helped me to just get my shit together, basically, that, you know, <laughs> feel, feel more aware of what I need and want and not always be overly worried and compassionate and selfless. Like those are qualities I love about me, but mm. if they're on a spectrum, I was way over there mm. and all of my decisions were being based on what everyone else needed and wanted and me feeling a bit of a burden and a bit mm. like not, not loving myself enough really. And to really get to the core of that and work on that, I, I feel quite a different person as a result. And so I don't know how directly that answered your question, but it, I feel like there's quite an important point to share within there anyway. Yeah, definitely. And, and thanks for sharing that because it is a, a tough journey. And, you know, things like the, the pandemic has, has triggered people's fear response. And yeah. I, I noticed this myself and I was triggered into, you know, a real kind of sense of anxiety and a sense of survival. And, you know, I was actually in a foreign country at the time when it happened and I was locked down, stuck in the foreign country. The conditions weren't that bad, actually. But, uh, you know, it was the fear response of, well, where are we going to get fresh water? Yeah. You know, what happened? if there's nobody alive to run the the power station where are we going to get the electricity from you yeah, know yeah. like some real basic things in survival i was like this is totally irrational you know and when you look at the survival rate of this pandemic and you start to look at the numbers behind it it's like well okay there's a whole different topic we could have probably podcast shows about i'm sure yeah but, uh, you know when, when we kind of dig inside it it triggers a fear response and it's, it then flushes up all of that negativity and all that sadness and that fear, which causes us to overthink. It causes us to want to control. It loses our trust with people. Yeah. And then you get into your, your level of sadness, which is where it triggers this. Uh, it's actually a belief around not worthiness, mm -hmm. which is the pleaser saboteur. And pleaser saboteur wants to make sure that everyone else is happy and do things for everyone else. 
and what that means is that ultimately you don't get your own needs met yeah but what then happens is ultimately you actually start to become resentful towards other people. Mm-hmm. So it's like a real confusion because you, you want to help others and you want to do things for other people and you want to make sure they're okay. Your needs get neglected, but then you start to actually resent others because you're being neglected and your own needs are neglected. And that brings this kind of real cycle of anxiety and fear and sadness and anger. And so it's like all of that is triggered, you know, where you get all of that happening at the same time. So what sort of things were you able to explore, if you don't mind sharing, around, you know, the, the things that had affected you in the past? What what did you explore and then what did you do to try to, to get beyond them? Yeah, so I think with the, the therapy itself, most of all was just that hour every week where I could really talk about what I felt I wanted to talk about. It was quite free-flowing and then it was quite surprising that when I got chatting about a topic and the the therapist also helped guide and ask relevant questions but you know ended up in in places and saying things that I may have had you know nice in-depth chats with my partner or my parents or friends and family that felt like I was sharing my worries and getting a bit more clear on how to come out the other side but at the end of the day you know, they are loved ones and we are all close and we all have different beliefs or different preferences and different narratives. So I think most of all the therapists helped me sort of double check and question my own beliefs and habits really. And so it gave me, it was, I still did the work. It was, I I realized had a few Eureka aha moments myself but it was because of that safe space, because of that chance to just share what was you know, stuck deep inside of me. Um, but to give maybe a bit of a, a tangible example for the listeners as well. Um, so I've, I live with my fiance. We've been together about eight years. We're actually due to get married this year in Poland, but the you know, pandemic had other ideas for us. Um, and, you know, normally when, when we were first a couple, Kasha did a lot of my care support, particularly because we really traveled a lot. We were gone months at a time for a while. So it wasn't practical for someone in the local town to pop in and pop out because we were wherever we were around the world. So there was a period where she did a lot of the care. Then there was, um, she actually got quite burnt out and exhausted because she was doing all of my care, but also she didn't have any time and space for herself so when you talked about that pleaser saboteur and then the the resentment can start to creep in I think we both caught that early that as much as she loved me and wanted to help me she wasn't getting her needs seen to you know in general both the basic energy and time but you know what career does she want what other goals has she got so that was important that that changed them for her but I realized that as a knee-jerk reaction I had felt like I caused her to burn out and I then felt more than ever oh I don't want to ask Kasha to do too much for me but the last three four years we've had more and more of these other outside care people coming in but I still was having that that um, program if you like that I felt like they had to be a friend because 
the, the carers at uni were friends and that served me well at uni. But the biggest thing I would say that came out of the therapy was that, you know, I have a disability. It's not wrong that I need help with these certain things. Yes, I should still be friendly and compassionate and all those great things. But yeah, it just wound it right back to the fact that I just needed to work more on what I need. And so it's got me to spend more time, you know, just going inward. Uh, I, I don't say that I meditate as a, as a sort of inverted commas, but I do love that quiet space, that going inwards and just dreaming of new things and just touching into my spirituality really. And I feel like most of all, that's what the therapy helped me to achieve. Excellent. Yeah, I'm glad that it's had that effect for you because it is important to have that kind of different level of consciousness. Yeah. And um, Albert Einstein wrote about this in his in his um, essays. And so nowadays we would call it a podcast probably or we would call it a blog. But he was writing essays and, and writing um, different articles. And he wrote about you cannot solve today's problem with the same level of consciousness that mm -hmm. created it. It's often misquoted as the same level of thinking that created it. But it's around that you know, whatever you're experiencing where you've got some kind of negative emotion like a sadness, a fear or an anger that's been triggered, it's likely that that's from your unconscious that, that controls a lot of that. It's like a reptilian survival response. Mm. So we've talked a lot about why that might get triggered in the pandemic, for example, um, and from lockdown. But then to rise above that, you have to shift your level of consciousness. You can't solve that problem from your unconscious because the unconscious is not capable or not. It's, it kind of can come up with ideas, but it doesn't actually shift your level of thinking or shift, mm. shift your perspective so to be able to do that and find ways to do that is so important so what other things have you done to to sort of that you could share that were helpful for people of how you've helped to overcome those negative thoughts or or that sabotaging behavior how, how have you overcome that yeah I mean, in some ways some of the things i'm about to share i i learned and implemented two three four years ago particularly with the Mind Valley sort of mm. events and programs. But I also think somewhere the last year or so, I stopped doing them as a habit, as a daily ritual. And that was partly why I then ended up a little bit back in a funk, so to speak. So I think that it was partly re-remembering. I know Jason Goldberg talks about a lot of coaching is helping people to re-remember um, so just in terms of I, I felt like that happened this year but in the end you know I sort of feel like I've been in this cocoon and I've suddenly the last month feel like the caterpillars become a butterfly again and and it's not rocket science it's nothing crazy difficult it is just that getting good sleep trying to do some physio for me that's the sort of exercise part which is difficult being in a wheelchair and having very limited upper let alone lower body movement but nonetheless I've found some ways to just even if the carers are doing it for me you know to to be moving me and uh, moving my body um, I've actually um, started up some uh, products with a company called Isogenics because I'm just not good with diet forever and I found this to be a way that you know I can get good nutrients in me without it being a, a, a way that after a week or a month, I've stopped again, you know, but more, and I think all that is massively positive on 
mental well-being. If you feel good physically, I've, I've lost quite a lot of weight around my belly. I was getting that bit of a middle-aged spread. So I can't speak highly enough of looking after your physical self mm -hmm. as a way of still looking after your mental well-being. Mm -hmm. um, another sort of strategy or tactic, more directly speaking to the mental well-being, I've tried to look at what I can have control over. And so like with the pandemic, I got sucked in early on with the news briefings, the, the cases, the death rates, and it just spiraled my adrenal gland and it exhausted me. Mm. And yet I had no control over that. Whereas when I look more to let's have something nice for dinner tonight, let's go with the dog for a walk, whether it's raining or not, let's get out and get fresh air and, you know, mindfulness of the walk and the, the trees and all the things we saw on the walk. Um, that, that focusing on what we have control over was a big one. Excellent. Yeah, certainly is. And particularly in that situation where, you know, you've been triggered with the, the fear response, as I mentioned earlier. So, uh, yeah, that's brilliant. Thanks, Martin. I really appreciate that. Anything else you'd like to sort of say before we wrap up our, our conversation today? Yeah, the, the problem is there's so much to say, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know it, it, when you break it down, that there's the physical um, sort of effects if you're not in a good place or the by priming your body, you can prime the, the mental well-being. There's the mental well-being and there's the spiritual stuff and all three of those of, of sort of the triangle, the, the, the three legs that hold the stool up are so important. But yeah. there's so many different areas we could go into those. But no, I think we've... It's been lovely to come on your show and just share some of my story. And I think, you know, those with a disability or that know someone with a disability, a lot of it will resonate with. But I think also a big part of my mission is people that maybe haven't come into contact with disability. It's a learning experience, an educational experience about that part of life for the 1.3 billion people. Um, but most of it's been cool just to, to, to talk about, you know, sabotage and Hopefully the listeners, whether disabled or not, have taken some helpful you know, tips and advice away. Thanks, Martin. And as always, we really welcome your feedback from listeners. So if you'd like to comment or give any uh, feedback for today's episode, please feel free to do that. It's always a pleasure to have interesting guests and to enjoy chatting about topics that we're so passionate about. Um, in the next episode, you'll be hearing from my next guest. So uh, thanks for tuning in and look forward to catching up with you again soon. Take care. Thank you.